You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Grace. Hey, it's Sarah. And today we are going to head to Williamsport for a case. Um, but I know I was out last week. I had literally no voice. Um, and just kind of kudos to you guys for covering that case. Well, um, there's a lot to it. And, um, I know at one point, Chelsea, you mentioned like, this is my area. And I was, you know, not far off from her age. So we did have some friends in common. I have, you know, pretty solid-ish knowledge of the case, and you guys did an awesome job talking about it. Um, So sorry I couldn't be here, but you wouldn't have been able to hear me anyway. (laughs) So I would have just been sounding like a scratchy mouse. So, Um, well, let's go ahead and get started with today's case. Uh, Shout out to some listeners again for this episode. This one's actually been requested a few times. It's a pretty popular case, well-known case, a lot of emphasis still following this case, and we'll kind of get into what that looks like as we talk more about it. Um, but it's actually also close to a friend of mine. So really, as much as all of the requests for this helped bring it to our minds initially, shout out to Carrie for talking to me about this a couple of weeks ago and actually getting me into finally researching it officially. So, yeah, thanks to Carrie. So we are talking about the double homicide of Gail Matthews and Tamara Burkheiser. Um, First and foremost, I'm just going to apologize up front. For some reason, my brain will not accept that her name is pronounced Tamara, and I keep wanting to say Tamara. I don't know if it's because I grew up with Tia and Tamara Mowry or what. I have a sticky note literally on my monitor screen so that I say Tamara But if I do slip up, I apologize, just apologizing in advance because I know myself and I'm sure it will happen. I read it that way, too. So I totally understand. Okay, it's not just me. Well, then I started thinking of Tamla Horsford, which is a famous unsolved case. And then I want to call her Tamla instead of Tamara. And there's too many names in my head. And so I just apologize if I say her name incorrectly. I promise I am trying. For some reason, my brain just doesn't want to accept any other pronunciation. So let's talk first a little bit about our victims. So Gail and Tamara are a mother-daughter team. When Gail was 16, her then-boyfriend, Eric Burkheiser, got her pregnant. Well, I mean, they kind of got themselves pregnant. It wasn't just him. She was involved in it as well. Takes two to Um, tango. Right. And it was some consensual tangoing. So at the time of their murders, though, Gail and Tamara were 23 and five. So this was obviously five years after her pregnancy. And as many teenage relationships go, you know, they tried to stay together. They swore they were going to be high school sweethearts and stay married forever and raise this family. But life happens, as you see in a lot of high school relationships, and they grew up, they grew apart, um, but they did maintain a solid, solid relationship still, um, especially for Tamara, because they both wanted to be involved in some way. So there really wasn't any 
horrible bad blood between them but we will talk a little bit more about him whenever we talk about the suspects because of course they're going to go to anyone that's involved and the father of the child would be very close to them so we'll talk a little bit more about him later but gail was born on march 4th 1971 she was the fourth of six children and after she became pregnant with Tamara, she decided that she couldn't finish school while being a mom. So she did the best option that she could find and just became a mom full time. So she dropped out of high school, uh, but she was described as a hardworking woman and mother who was really just trying to build the best life possible for her and her daughter. Their neighbors and family described Tamara as the sweetest young girl who was just incredibly polite. And she was very excited for kindergarten to start. Some of the sources I found said that it was starting in the following weeks. But then there's one source that says a person who spoke to Tamara outside of their house was told that tomorrow was starting school the next day. So I'm not really sure. And maybe it was just a misinterpretation of something that a small child is saying because small children say things. I was just thinking that I bet if most sources point to in the next couple weeks, I could imagine a five-year-old saying I start tomorrow or right, something like similar. Knowing that it's coming soon. And knowing that tomorrow is after now, you know, kids, kids don't concretely grasp tomorrow versus next week when they're five or most kids don't grasp that when they're five. So that's one little bit of discontinuity that I saw. But, you know, one of the people was a five year old. So quite possible. She just had some details wrong. They lived in a duplex in Williamsport and a woman named Brenda lived on the other side of the duplex. They did share a front lawn and they also shared a porch, um, which I mean, that's kind of how I imagine most duplexes to be that there's like a porch across the entire front of the house. And then you just go into one or the other door, depending on the side you live on. So that just kind of makes sense to me. But it was said that Gail and Tamara usually spent more time at Gail's mother's house. Um, and her mother's name is Lois. She comes up a couple times just because... I mean, if you're a 23-year-old mom to a five-year-old, you're probably going to need your mom a lot too. So I totally get that. You know, she was independent. They did have their own place. She worked a job. She was managing um, wait staff at a local restaurant. And, you know, she was able to provide. But also, heck yeah, if your mom's that close, I mean, they were a couple blocks away. Absolutely, you're going to be recruiting your mom for help and possibly friendship. They did have a, a very good relationship, so... Even though they did spend a whole lot of time at Lois's house, um, they did definitely know their neighbor, Brenda, as well. And she becomes not necessarily a key player, but we hear her name a lot as we go through this case. So um, I'm going to give a little bit of a background on her now, but we'll kind of come back to her little by little and get more information as we dive deeper. So obviously we know she's Gail and Tamara's neighbor. Turns out she also mothers two children whose father is Gail's brother, whose name is Galen. That's a lot to And unpack. yes, their names are Gail and Galen. That is a lot. So when I was researching this, um, I found a couple, I found one podcast and a one YouTube video and trying to follow them explaining that relationship. I literally had to get like a stack of post-its out and I was like, writing names down and drawing arrows to figure out who is who um so yeah it's a 
weird circle. That is funny. Their names, the husband and wife, I babysat for family and the husband's name was Jody, IE, and the wife's was Jody with a Y. It would confuse the crap out of me. I'm like, don't even have a nickname oh over God. here. What's happening? I know. That would be really confusing. So Gail's but- brother is Galen, who fathered Correct. one of Brenda's children. Two. Two of, oh, both of them. So they're kind okay. of a family, basically, kind of, right? Right. It's almost like, like a uh, sister-in-law type deal, except they're not married. If, if they were still together, correct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So Gail is the aunt of Brenda's children. Okay. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So they're cousins with Tamara. So anyway, yeah, there was that kind of family style-ish connection between these neighbors. So they knew each other pretty well. And I did find a source that said Brenda had another child. It may be that she was pregnant. I don't think she was. There is another pregnancy that comes up. So I'm not 100% sure if she had a third child or not. She definitely had at least two from Gail's brother. And uh, like I said, I'm not 100% sure. Some sources said she only had two children. Some said that she had a third. So, I mean, Brenda had, there were other kids living in that duplex. It's not insanely important, the number of children that there were. Brenda also had an on-again, off-again relationship with a man named Earl R. Kramer III, who went by the nickname Skip. Um, And just hang on to that name because it comes up a lot as we dive deeper. So we're in Williamsport in this duplex with a shared porch, shared front yard. We've got Gail and Tamara on one side and Brenda and her kids and sometimes this skip guy on the other side. So on the night of September 1st, 1994, Gail and Tamara were seen outside their house by neighbors around 9 and 10 p.m. Nobody else, aside from whoever assaulted them, saw them again until their bodies were discovered in Tamara's bed on the morning of September 2nd. According to the coroner's report, Gail was stabbed over 11 times. I don't really know what that means, like maybe 11 definite knife wounds or stab wounds, and then a couple more that might be like nicks, but weren't full stabs. Like, I don't know how you can count 11 and know that it's more than that, but not know the exact number. Right. So I don't know if it was like 11 full out stabs and then maybe a couple more that were just like smaller punctures. So that's kind of how I interpreted that. But if anybody else knows what that actually means, feel free to correct me. But she was also likely sexually assaulted. Um, Now, I say likely because she was found with clothing moved her shorts and everything on her lower half was pulled down to I believe it was her knees it may have been her ankles and her shirt was shoved up over her chest however it's hard to say if the evidence of sexual contact that was found was consensual or non-consensual because um, she did have a boyfriend Kind of that she had started seeing and they did find semen in her body whenever they found her body and it did match this boyfriend, but they couldn't link specifically if it was a sexual encounter from that night or a different night. So it's one of those things where they found her. She had clearly had sexual contact, but based on stories they got later from the boyfriend, it may have just been 
sexual contact from that consensual experience a couple days prior. There's a couple more weird details that come with that, but we'll look at them a little bit later. So they say likely just because of how she was found, but they really didn't have any way to prove it um, because the only evidence of sexual contact was a consensual sexual known mate. Do you know how long like semen will stay in the body for? The good news is if you put the words that SA stands for in a Google search, it brings you the sexual assault hotline number to call. So that's oh, good to know. Yeah. That that always pops up. Okay. It says uh, when sperm are inside a woman's body, they can live for up to five days. Hmm. So I guess if the body itself doesn't have anything that's going to flush it out, it could still stay in there for five days. Which is within the, it's within the realm of his claim of when they last had sex. And I'm guessing so. even if they're not alive, they could still probably be identified. So it could potentially be longer. I didn't know they could live yeah. that long. I didn't know that either. The more you know. But yeah, so apparently five days is how long that can survive in there. But like I said, she was, they assume likely sexually assaulted, but again, can't say for sure. But we will come back to some more of those details a little bit later on with one of the suspects. Tamara was found tucked into the covers of her bed. She had been strangled using manual strangulation. So the person was using their hands and a piece of clothing. She had also been struck about the head in some fashion. They weren't sure entirely they couldn't identify a specific object that would have been used um, but they did say it could have been really any form of blunt force trauma it could have been slamming her head against something it could have been using something on her head happily which it feels weird to say um but in a very positive spin there was no evidence of sexual assault whatsoever on um tamara which is good because she was five so like it wasn't just some, you know, pedophilic creep that was trying to get at the kid, which doesn't make it better that you murdered a mother and child, but like at least you stopped at a certain point. It almost feels like she got stabbed so many times, like it was personal, especially for her. And you almost think that maybe, unfortunately, the kid just walked in or unfortunately saw it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a, a lot of interesting theories. Um and I didn't go too much into all the details of this, but um, there are a couple different theories out there that kind of posit whether maybe Gail was putting Tamara to bed and that she was like laying down in Tamara's bed because she was, you know, reading her story and tucking her in or whatever. But there was also a window in Gail's room that had a fan and... When Lois came over the next morning and found the bodies in the house, the fan from Gail's window had been removed and was on the floor. Hmm. So they're wondering if someone was trying to maybe wait for Gail. And because Gail wasn't coming in, they just kind of got mad and impatient and stormed off. And because she was in Tamara's room, they just attacked both. So it's... And they don't know, like, the order. They don't know who was killed first. And there was a whole discussion on the YouTube video that I watched that's linked on the blog. There was a whole discussion, like, in the comments about which would be better or worse. And I was like, well, they both just suck. 
Yeah. Like, can we just not have either of them being murdered? Like, is it worse as a child to watch your parent be murdered or as a parent to watch your child or know that your child has to watch you? Or like, can we just not murder people? Yeah. It seems like kind of a pointless argument. Right. So I don't know. It was weird. But if you want to see people's comments about that, if that's something that interests you. Okay. So it's the first YouTube video that's linked in our sources. It opens up. It's a video of this case. And he also then talks about the Delphi murders. Oh, that's one which of are my also cases. Fascinating. Yeah. Yep. But not in Pennsylvania. So in regards to motive, all that investigators were originally able to say was just that robbery was not a motive. In addition, the attack itself was very personal. And I know Chelsea kind of commented on that a couple minutes ago. Like we always talk about stabbing is insanely personal, but then also manually strangulating a five-year-old. Like that's, that's not a whoops, I was mad and hit you over the head. Like that's personal. I I can't even think about. Yeah, I can't. I don't um, think people realize how long it takes, it takes to strangle someone for them to pass out and then from for them to actually die. And even if you don't think that several minutes sounds like a long time when you are like actually doing it. I mean, you have to be in it mentally. Yeah. For that whole time. It's just I mean, think about unreal. Like this is I don't know why. This is the best analogy for me, but other people have used it on me. Like, think about holding a plank. Like, do a plank, like the ab exercise. Oh, okay. I was like, not, not sorry. following. <laughs> not like putting a piece of wood in your hands, but like doing the ab exercise, the core exercise of a plank. Yeah. And just hold that plank. And you start to realize how long one minute, two minutes, three minutes really yeah, is. Yeah, that's true. And I mean, that's, it's something like, it takes two minutes to strangle someone to passing out. Yeah, something like that. Two to three minutes. And then... And that's just to passing out. Like, that's not even to right. fully killing them. Yeah. So, yeah, there's definitely uh, some personal or just really sick people involved. That's why when people have said, like, oh, she wanted me to strangle her during sex and it just got out of hand. Like, you're there's plenty right. of time for you to pull back from that. <laughs> You're, you're going to know. Right. You're going to know. Right. right. Yeah. No, absolutely. Um, there was also broken glass at the crime scene indicating that the assailant had entered through the first floor kitchen window. Um, investigators originally did say that they felt Gail knew the attacker and then later came back and recanted and said maybe she did, maybe she did not. So with no immediate leads, they collected what evidence they could and like they took a lot of evidence which is really good and kind of gives a lot of hope for the technology that is starting to come out because um, we'll get into it a little bit later. But they were able to run some different tests in September of 94 when the murder occurred, but they've been able to run more tests in the years following up until as recently as 2020 they were running some tests. So it is really good that they had so much evidence that they pulled because the evidence they pulled is still being run, which is awesome. But they also then allowed the Matthews and Burkheiser families to bury their girls and um, kind of have their funerals and grieving time and all of that. 
But not too much later, in 1995, because of new technologies that had come out, they were granted an exhumation of the bodies in order to collect additional DNA. They ran many tests again that they were hoping would be able to provide more information, and this was all based on advances in computer enhancement, photo enhancement, and green lasering, which the best definition I could get from green lasering, I heard it on a podcast, one of the investigators had called in so it was like call quality through a podcast so I couldn't quite get every word he was saying plus I'm just hearing impaired but he was kind of describing that the green lasering takes what you're able to see and I believe he was saying it was microscopically so not just in a photo but it enhances what you're able to see when you're looking at certain cells. So hypothetically, it would be a way to link the DNA potentially or get a better look at fingerprints for some of the touch DNA that they found, anything like that. So basically, they all just were able to take information and evidence that they had and look at it in a way beyond what the normal, you know, naked eye would be able to see. So we get our first break in 1998. A man named Earl R. Skip Kramer III was brought in on charges of murder in varying degrees. Does his name sound familiar? Because it should. So yes, this is the same Skip Kramer who had dated Brenda, Gail and Tamara's neighbor, and who had been at the house the night of the murder. But I'll get to why he was at the house in a second. So he gets arrested and charged in 1998. He was jailed in the Lycoming County Prison with no bail, and within weeks of his arrest, his case was actually dismissed by a judge due to insufficient evidence related to hearsay. So I kind of interpret that as meaning there was only circumstantial evidence. I did find something that said it had to do with a fiber that was found on his clothing that matched a fiber from one of Tamara's stuffed animals. But then there was a reason that it was excluded. I think the reason was just that the kids played together. So, you know, that could kind of excuse they would play with each other's toys and then fibers would transfer. And so I think it had something to do with those fibers, but I couldn't quite find the exact reason that it was dismissed for the fibers. But it it had something to do with those fibers that were found. But then it was just considered hearsay. So yeah, I don't think that you can if that's your only evidence, I don't think that's considered very because you can only say like microscopically similar, you can't necessarily say the same exact fiber. So right, something like that. Right? Yeah, I don't think it's very strong on its own. What what kind of baffles me with this situation though is that he was charged right so like he was arrested and there was enough there to charge him but before he could go through the trial is when they said oh it's hearsay and they um relinquished the charges dropped the charges Hmm. so i don't it it seems weird um but they keep working the case they are all convinced that skip is involved in this So when you say they, they as who? The police or the family? Or everyone? Both. Both. Okay. Yeah. Um, The family and police have all very much stayed on top of this case. And that's, there's actually a book um, that I kind of skimmed. I didn't get to read word for word. It goes in a lot of detail, a little bit more than we needed for the pod. So I didn't include much information from it. But um, one of the investigators 
Ken Maines wrote a book on the case. And that's actually where a lot of our information comes from when we start talking about some of the suspects, because he really gave a lot of that information between interviews that he gave and then what he has in the book. So the they really is everybody. Okay. I mean, the family was was working. The police was working. Um, the police department had two city and two county officers working the case every shift. So they constantly had four people on it, which is a lot more than we see in a lot of other cases that we've covered. So, yeah, they definitely had support of the police. And they just can't 100% pin it on Skip, but they're like, this guy. Like, he's he's sketch. It's just, it's not, there's something is off here. He's got to be involved. So, in 2001, things change a little bit. So, in 2001, things start to change, but unfortunately not for the better. Uh, the DA tries to take this case against Skip to a grand jury again, but it's dismissed and they say that more evidence is needed. Specifically, the judge overseeing the grand jury stated that he would not allow charges to be refiled until there were tests run and results received from the FBI. So they said, okay, and they sent things off to the FBI and the FBI said, all right, we'll run them. And the results came back in 2002, which is probably faster than any criminal justice department can take care of any DNA now because of how much has stacked up. Yeah. Like less than a year they had that DNA stuff coming back for this. So, I mean, unless there's a piece of the timeline that I didn't see in the articles and maybe they actually sent it out before and they were just waiting for it to come back from the FBI. Yeah, it does seem like a quick turnaround. Yeah. So um, in 2002, we repeat the cycle that we saw before. They arrest Skip Kramer. He is charged with murder and they're making him await trial with no bail. And then the judge turns around and dismisses the evidence as insufficient. So this one I was able to find a little bit more detail on. The evidence, I guess the the kind of big grand Pumbaa evidence that they had for this was glitter that was in Tamara's room was also found in Kramer's vehicle. And I didn't write it down, but I think they said the trunk, but I'm not entirely sure. Um, I could be completely wrong on that. Um, but it was in his vehicle somewhere for sure. So the glitter was an exact match to what was in Tamara's room. And I'm assuming it's got to not just be arts and craft glitter. Like, I don't see how you can actually arraign somebody on charges for like, you know, target brand glitter that happens to be in a child's room and also in a vehicle of a person that has children. Yeah, that's bizarre. Like, it's it's got to be something more specific. But I like, Everywhere I looked, they were just referring to it as the glitter. I'm just confused because glitter goes everywhere with like not even like minimal movement and it's everywhere. I just don't, I don't know. So now apparently whatever this glitter was, whether it was glitter as we kind of think of it with arts and crafts or whether it was something else that is just that they're calling glitter that's, I don't know, something distinguishable about it. Apparently, it was only in Tamara's room. And, like, they didn't find it anywhere else in the house. They didn't find it, like, anywhere outside initially. They didn't find it. Like, they just had it in her room, and then they found it in his car. But then they were reviewing notes and there was one officer that had noted during a previous visit that there was some of the same glitter on the front porch so they basically lost their large argument 
because he admitted that he was on that porch that night because he was involved with Brenda. Like, you know, that's like someone saying that, you know, my husband was on the front porch of our house or like my best friend was at my front porch. Like, well, yeah, we know each other. Like they can be here sort of thing. I'm wondering if they're talking about um, it's not it's more like confetti, I guess, but like the kind of stuff you like spread on tables at kids birthday parties that could be in different shapes, like say it's like it's like little puppies or something and it's just like tiny, tiny little cutouts, but it kind of gets everywhere like glitter or something like that, something you could really identify. But something that was nowhere else in the house and that was only enough of it was on the porch that like one person noted it. Yeah. It it seems weird and I feel like I am just not understanding the word glitter. <laughs> yeah. But it I mean, I heard it, I read it, I saw it in subtitles like it said glitter. I don't <laughs> most likely the people that were on scene were men who probably don't know the difference between the different types of glitter more like a female would, not to be rude. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, that's true. It just seems weird. It all seems weird. I don't know. So anyway, because that glitter was also noted as having been on the porch, they could no longer use that as their argument for why he must have been in Tamara's room. So they had to let him go again. And so they had to drop the charges again. And the pieces really do kind of seem to fit. So let's talk a little bit about why. We're going to talk about Skip, and then we're also going to dive into a couple other suspects. So I already said that Skip and Brenda were kind of on again and off again. Um, It's rumored that Skip was jealous that Brenda had children to another man. Um, And of course, that man, as we talked about earlier, was Galen, which is Gail's brother. Um, Witnesses in the area saw Skip walking around the house early in the morning on the 2nd of September. We're talking like 5 a.m. early, like just chilling outside 5 a.m um we'll we'll talk about his whole timeline of the night um but at this point he had actually not gone to bed yet he had been up all night we only know this because a neighbor woke up around that time and saw him on the front porch of the house like the front porch of gail and brenda's house talking to a blonde-haired child now apparently one of brenda's kids was blonde-haired and you can see in the pictures that tamara was also blonde-haired so they don't know which child he was talking to but somebody this neighbor did see him talking to the child on the porch and heard skip say quote your mommy's not here go back inside unquote so Um, After hearing about the murder, this neighbor reported it to police and said it was absolutely 100% for sure Skip Kramer on that porch. This is a person that had known Skip personally, so they believed him. You know, it wasn't just, oh, I saw a guy that looks like that sketch. It was like, hey, I know this person, and it was them standing on my neighbor's porch. So Skip claims that he was only there checking Brenda's doorknob to make sure that she didn't have some other guy over. He wasn't involved with the murder at all. So, you know, like not a murderer, but maybe also if your partner breaks up with you, don't try to like break into their house because that's that's also a crime. It's not quite as severe as murder, but let's um just maybe go ahead and not spy on exes ever. Don't do it. Unless it's just Facebook stalking. Like, don't actually follow people. That's just, no. 
So anyway, like I said, he just claims that he wanted to make sure she wasn't shacking up with someone immediately after breaking it off with him, which still isn't cool. But like, I mean, I it makes sense. Like, that's a thing that people do. Right. Doesn't necessarily mean he murdered anyone. It's just creepy and not cool. Right. So Skip was in the area to begin with because he was trying to get his stuff back from Brenda, including his car, because like I said, they had just broken up. Um, So he did go into the house, got his stuff, threw it in his Pinto, and then the Pinto wouldn't start. So he walked down about a block to his friend's place and he called a place called the Taproom Bar in order to get a ride from some friends, which feels like probably the only time that somebody has called a bar and asked for a ride. Yeah, right? I feel like usually it's someone calling from a bar to ask for a ride. But I mean, no judgment. I just thought that was kind of funny. So his friends, Ken Brown and Steve Swisher, picked him up and all three of them went back to the bar. Skip does admit that at some point he went outside to smoke crack cocaine and then stayed at the bar till 4.30 a.m., which I didn't even realize bars stayed open that late. But I guess, I I mean, maybe that's a newer rule this was 94 okay. so that's what i was gonna ask because i had someone in my family that was a bar hopper but they always came around home around like two thirty three because that's where everything closed yeah and i remember now everything's a little bit different now and i also am old and don't go out you know as late as last call but i know like before covid and everything last call was usually like Anywhere between 1 a.m. and 3 a.m., depending on where you were. So even with that, like, they were at the bar till 4.30. I mean, that's beyond current last call. I I mean, it was probably just a different set of rules that it didn't matter as much. Could they have just been in the parking lot, though, possibly, and not in the bar? Like, Um, for some of that time? Just hanging out maybe but his story was detailed enough that you know he was saying like oh we did this with these people and then we went here and then we, you know like so i feel like you know if he's notating oh yeah i went outside to smoke crack he probably would say like well the bar closed but we hung out in the parking lot until blah 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 so i i mean there's no no proof in that that's just kind of my interpretation of how he spoke So then another friend came and picked him up and drove him to the area of Hawthorne Avenue. And they walked around for about an hour just kind of talking about the breakup, which, I mean, I can get that. Like, you want to be with this girl, but she broke up with you. So you're going to walk around with your buddy and talk about it. Like, absolutely. Some people think that that's sketchy, that he would just walk around for an hour. And I was like, I, I do that also. So I don't. I don't think it's that weird, especially because if you're drinking that late, you know, you're up at the bar till 430. You've smoked some crack. Like, <laughs> I was just you're not say. going to sleep right now. Yeah, he's not like, sleeping. No. So um, some people think it's sketchy. I don't know. I think it's normal to walk around with your friends if you're going through a breakup and talk about it. Now, at around 5.15, someone saw Skip walking around alone, so he was not walking with this friend anymore, and he asked her for the time. And after that point is when the neighbor saw him talking to the blonde child on the porch, and then when he got back to his car after all of this, because remember, this all started because he just couldn't get his car started, so that's why he went to the bar with his friends. So he finally makes it back to his car, and surprise, surprise, it still doesn't start. So Skip then got someone to come help him push it. Then they tried it again and it was still dead. Again, I don't know why pushing your car any farther is going to make it start better unless it's like an incline thing. 
Um, Because I've definitely had that, like the house that I grew up in had a semi-steep driveway. And if you parked the wrong way and you were too low on fuel, it might not start the next morning. So I get that, but... He'd also been smoking crack, so he probably didn't have Uh, great ideas. Analyzing the actions of someone high on crack probably isn't going to work out too well for me anyway, so... Um, So he ended up just sleeping in his car and that's when someone called police and said, yo, there's a guy sleeping in a car on this road and police helped him without realizing who he was or knowing that they'd be talking to him again later that week, but as a murder suspect. So once it came to be known that he was a person of interest that they wanted to talk to and get information from. Police were able to find him again and they interviewed him and he gave them permission to search anything and take anything. Um, They were allowed to search through all of his belongings, take absolutely anything that they thought would be pertinent. Um, They did find the glitter in his vehicle, like I said. Um, And then there were a couple of different thoughts that came out about a theorized motive for him. So... It's possible that he was just sexually attracted to Gail and got mad when she did not reciprocate or when he found out that she did have that casual boyfriend that I mentioned before. It's also possible that he felt like Gail was encouraging Brenda to kick Skip out and move on with her life. Um, So he may have held a grudge toward Gail for Brenda breaking up with him. Um, And then it's also possible that he was mad at the familial connection to Brenda's children. Again, just kind of harboring rage for an ex, which is stupid because you can't change it by being angry. But okay. Anyway, it's... It kind of bounces around through these different theories, but after everything was sent out, none of his DNA matched anything at the crime scene. They tested, um, like touch DNA and, uh, like fluid DNA and nothing matched anything. Like I said, um, he, his DNA didn't match anything that was found there. But a comment was made by investigators, however, that just because the DNA didn't belong to Skip, it didn't mean they were completely ruling him out. It did poke a ton of holes in the theory, though. Like, they are dead set on it being this guy. That's never good. It's never and good. I will say, um, I do have a friend that's kind of close to the case, um, and she and her family know Skip. and also feel that it is quite possible that he was involved if not the perpetrator um so there's definitely things that just aren't known to the media but from the looks of it it seems like things that have disqualified other suspects over and over and over again they're like well that doesn't mean everything we're keeping him on our list yeah sort of thing so i don't know i kind of take some of their thoughts about him with a grain of salt But um, they did eventually move on and start looking at some other theories. And honestly, there are like a lot of compelling stories for a ton of these suspects. Um, One of the lead investigators in the podcast episode I listened to actually said, you know, I could take about 14 of these and get indictments from a grand jury to take any of these to trial. But obviously they couldn't have all done it. So like there's enough circumstantial evidence to push just about anyone involved into it. Wow. Because there's not as much physical evidence or because of 
the way the physical evidence just lines up with their normal day-to-day lives. And we'll talk about that in a little bit here. So they did start by looking at Tamara's father, Eric Burkheiser. Um, They had a thought that he may have been mad about Gail's new relationship, this casual relationship that I had mentioned, um, and also increased child support. So Eric and his new girlfriend were apparently in a ton of child support debt. Um, I believe his girlfriend had two children to a different man and that man had custody of the children. So she was paying child support to him while Eric also had to pay child support to Gail. I do not believe they had any kids together or that there were any kids in the house on a regular basis. I think it was just the two of them. But like child support can kind of kill you. I mean, it there's depending on the situation there can be a lot, especially for multiple kids. So the thing about child support that kills me is obviously I can talk on it because I get child support. I have a son with my son's father and um, we went through it. And my son's father thought that there's no way they can make me pay this amount. I have bills, you know, they won't leave me with nothing. Um, So he thought that it would be less than 200. I was asking 400. Then when when we got to court, because he refused to like mediate with me at an amount, it was like just under a thousand dollars. And that was 10 years ago. And um, we actually have people that do our yard and they both have kids outside of their relationship. And the one woman has three children and they're constantly just trying to make money to pay off that. And I guess she like gave up and she just... Since she doesn't pay child support, she just can't see the kids. Yeah. Wow. And unfortunately, that happens to a lot of people. And it's not because they don't care. It really is like it is. It's hard to live and meet child support payments based on the calculations from courts quite often. Yeah. Um, and it, it's sad so, when I talk with her cause I'm frustrated. I was like, just pay your child support. But I'm like, it's not easy. You could tell that she is getting over a bad situation. I mean, I'm, right. I'm not trying to be your friend. I don't want to know about her life, but you can just tell, you know, they're trying to start a business, her and this person yeah. and you know, they're nice enough, but you can just tell the hurt, but I feel like she's more hurt to her partner. But then again, he's the one taking care of the kids 24 seven. It's like a hard, yeah, it's a hard balance and people use it against each other. I mean, like a single mom's group and the things that other parents do to each other is terrible because you still have this kid together and they see it. They pick up on that stuff. Yeah. And so the biggest thing that I took when we had to do mediation, was like, you have to still like, you're still in these people's lives. Like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree. But I guess, um, Eric said something to Gail about like, listen, I'm really struggling here. Um, is there anything that you can do to help me out? Like, can we adjust anything? Blah, blah, blah. So I guess part of the child support that was paid to Gail from Eric came straight from his employer. And It came straight out of his paycheck to her, which I know is still a thing that they do today. And they were taking 40 from him to give to her. And she told him, you know what? I'll give you back $10 a week of that money to make it a little bit easier on you because Tamara and I are doing okay. Like, you know, we can get by with $30 a week for a little bit. Um, But then I guess recently within the week before they were killed, she had told him something came up. I needed to use that extra $10. 
We don't know what for, but basically like I can't give you that extra this week. And $10 doesn't seem like a lot, but it was also $10 and 94 is a lot different than $10 in 2022. But also, I mean, if you're living paycheck to paycheck and doing everything you can to scrape to get by, $10, $10 is, is a good chunk. Yes, it's a lot. Um, so there was definitely some thought that because of that, maybe he was mad and he went over to kill them. Um, but like as a dad that was still close enough, knew his daughter, you know, like they weren't totally shut off from him living on the other side of a country under different names. Like they knew each other. I can't imagine that he would strangle his daughter with bare hands. I mean, it that's, happens that's for sure. The part I can't. Yeah. And it's probably just my naivety of believing what people write about other people in newspapers. But it just seems like he was a, a decent guy in those regards. Right. Like he made bad decisions, but it seems like he really did what he had to do for them. Um, so he was supposed to have his nephew over that night that they were killed. Um, but he wound up not having him over because his nephew was behaving poorly. According to investigators, his demeanor was appropriate, which just feels weird because like, who's to say what kind of reaction is appropriate or not appropriate. Like every time I hear that or something, people describing how like a spouse reacted or a parent or something, it makes me like nervous because I just imagine if anything like this ever happened to me, like I imagine people would probably say that my behavior was inappropriate because I just, just the way I react to things now, I can't imagine right. being in that position and knowing that everyone is judging how I'm reacting. It would probably, right. I'd probably act batshit. <laughs> well, to be fair, I do that already. <laughs> But yeah, so they did give him a polygraph and he did pass it, but he also had serious criminal history, including attempted homicide. He had a lot of arrests, often for domestic disturbances, DUIs, theft. Um, and then on a later polygraph, he did fail. So he passed one, but then failed one. And then I guess during one of the conversations, he made a comment about like he had some soul searching to do and they kind of laid out the case in front of a DA and the DA even agreed, you know, like you guys can go arrest him. You have enough here that points to him being the one that did it, you know, that we're, we support you in this. You can go arrest him and charge him. But then the detective said he was not 100% on it. So he didn't go through with arresting. And then they took it to the FBI and the FBI even agreed that he was, quote, appropriately prioritized, unquote, as the primary suspect. So like even the FBI is saying this is your most likely dude, but the detective didn't feel 100%. So they didn't arrest him. There were a lot of professionals that felt it had to be him. But he also never refused an interview. They called him in over 20 times and he always came in, which, you know, we're not going to let go of Skip because DNA said he wasn't there. But we're going to let Tamara's father go because he always came in for interviews. Like, I'm not really certain how they're uh, making these determinations. But the investigator that wrote the book that I've mentioned a couple of times did say, you know, looking back 10 years later, is he still a suspect? Nah, not to me. So it. I don't know if that's just in his mind. There was no more details about um, like evidence that supports that it is or isn't him. But 
he just says, no, we don't consider him a suspect anymore. It just seems weird. It seems inconsistent that they rule him out because he did a bunch of interviews and was always chill with it, but they're not ruling Skip out even though his DNA doesn't match. Hmm. So it just, it seems inconsistent, but as always, because it's a cold case, there are details that we do not know. So that's just part of the, part of the joys of cold cases. Now they did also look into Brenda. This is the neighbor again. They don't necessarily think that she was the murderer, but they think that she may have had something to do with it or was at least willing to cover up for Skip. Um, So we're here again, kind of going after Skip, but just going through his girlfriend instead of directly for him. Her story though has been consistent. Like they asked her the next day, they asked her years later, they asked her a decade later and her answers have not changed. Um, But not to a point where it feels rehearsed, just a point of like, no, this is what I did that night. Mm -hmm. So she says that she slept through the night until her son's crying woke her up. And she did hear someone walking around the bathroom on the other side of the house around 8 a.m. But that's really all she could add. She also claims that the murderer really was Skip and that he was mad at her, but because he was coked out and drunk and Lord knows what else, um, he just went to the wrong house or he like told one of his buddies to go do it or hired a hitman and the hitman went to the wrong house. That seems like a really fast turnaround time for a hitman though. Like they broke up September 1st and were killed in the early morning hours of the second. Like you're, you're that mad that you're sending a hitman that night. I don't, I don't know that I follow the hitman theory, but I could see, you know, if he's cracked out and super drunk, you know, who knows what's going through his head. But the one thing that we do know for sure is that Brenda was charged at some point with perjury for lying in regard to some of the details of the crime that she spoke of in this case. So not just like, oh, you lied a couple years ago on something different. No, like she was found guilty of perjury for evidence that she gave in this case, not evidence, testimony that she gave in this case. So it's kind of hard to take too much of what she says to heart um, because you don't really know what she's making up versus not. Um, However, there were details of the murders that she wasn't supposed to know, which is kind of sketchy. She claimed she knew these pieces of information from the police news and Gail's mother, but police claim that none of the details were ever released but then to kind of retort from that there was allegedly a leak to a news source in the area where those details were released but Hmm. there may not have been it's a lot of gray area for the details of this case so um Anyway, that's Brenda. They did kind of look at her, but ultimately ruled her out. Then we have Ken Brown. If you remember his name, it's because he was one of the guys that picked up Skip that night from the bar and then took him back to the bar. Um, He lived near Gail's home and he did give some inconsistent statements about the time he left the bar. Originally, he said he left at about 11 p.m. And then later he said it was more like 2.30 a.m. And even later he changed it to 4 a.m. So not entirely sure. I'm wondering if that original 11 p.m. wasn't when he left to go pick up Skip and then they came back because, I mean, that would fit in the timeline right around where Skip said that they picked him up. So I'm thinking it was probably 11 p.m. and then mixing up the details of 2.30 a.m. versus 4 a.m. was probably just I was really drunk last night and I can't remember what time I left. So. Not 100% sure on that, but what we do know is that he was an hour late to work the next day. 
um, but I couldn't find what time his work started. So, I mean, to me, that's just you got too drunk, passed out, and just overslept. Um, does not necessarily mean you murdered anyone. Um, just means probably shouldn't have been out drinking till 4.30 when you work the next day. Fair. But um, he did have a previous arrest for criminal homicide for causing a miscarriage. He also has a twin brother named Bill, and people think that he and Bill did it together. Never heard Bill's name again. Never read his name again. No idea why people think he's connected to the case. But apparently they think that he and his twin brother, Bill, had something to do with this. And that is Ken. Somebody else that they looked into was a man named Tommy Bartholomew. Tommy was attracted to Gail, but it was not reciprocated. And on the phone that night, Gail was complaining to one of her girlfriends about Tommy because he was just being too persistent. Um, he was actually seen at the house that evening around seven or eight talking to Tamara through the chain link fence. And this is what I mentioned earlier, where he asked Tamara what her mommy was doing. And she said, quote, staying home because I got school tomorrow, quote. And right then Gail actually came outside. He said hi to Gail. She kind of waved back at him. And then she walked back inside and then he asked Tamara if her mommy kept the doors locked and then he left and allegedly went to a bar and got drunk and left the bar getting home sometime between 10 and 1130, depending on who you asked and when you asked them. He did admit to also having bought cleaning supplies because he had a dirty car that he wanted to clean and he denies any involvement. I don't like that question about the doors. Ew. Yeah. I don't either, um, especially because in the crime scene, a window was broken. Hmm. So it was kind of like, oh, I know the doors are going to be locked. So I don't know. It definitely seems weird. Um, but again, he denied his involvement. And um, so they kind of moved on from there. And the last name of a suspect that they give is Jay Maley. And he was Gail's boyfriend at the time. They met in the summer of 94. So I couldn't find an exact like date or anything. But I mean, it was September of 94. So they had not known each other super long. They were not crazy involved, super committed, anything like that. Um, it was not exclusive. And Jay actually had another girlfriend who was pregnant. And on the night of the murders, the pregnant girlfriend found out that she had a VD and it didn't say which one, um, but she was mad, which, uh, yeah, I would be too. Um, but well, also she knew that he was also dating Gail, like it, they're, they were just open about it. Like she was cool with it. You know, she wasn't like, you've been cheating on me. But she definitely called him and she was like, um, hey, so I've got this now and um, you need to talk to Gail because both of y'all probably have it if I have it. Right. So um, she did, you know, blame him for it. And um, police did eventually question Jay. And in 1994, Jay did say that he and Gail had had sex a week before the murders. They talked to him again in 2013, and he stuck to his original story, but then police confronted him with the fact that his semen was found in her. So, like we looked up earlier, you know, it stays for five days. So you're claiming that you had sex with her seven or more days before this happened. We shouldn't be able to find your semen 
unless you've had sex more recently. So he broke down and admitted that he had had sex with her a few days before her murder, but didn't want to admit it because she had been on her period at the time. What? So I don't know if that's just like shame of sex during period. That's what it sounds like. But if you think about the female reproductive system, while you're in the middle of your period, your body is emptying itself. So it's not going to hold that semen for three, four more days. And investigators caught on to that. They said, Hmm. you know, if she was truly on her period at the time, there should be no semen there unless you also had sex again after her period ended. Um, And this was also news to the investigators. So I'm assuming when they did the autopsy, there was no like menstruation at all in there, which I mean, it's possible that her period just ended like Tuesday. She was killed Thursday night. Right. You know, yeah, that's that's definitely possible. But it doesn't make sense that his DNA would still be found. So that's really sketchy. um, And it really caught investigators attention. And this the girlfriend that was pregnant did admit that she was the angriest that she had ever been on that night. And she did give Jay an ultimatum to choose. So basically, you know, you can either be with me and your child or you can go with this other girl. And that's kind of the end of the information that we know about Jay. So in 2011, they did find touch DNA on the front inside waistband of Gail's underwear, which just feels like a John Bonet sort of DNA on the inside of the underwear thing where, you know, maybe it means something, but maybe it's just like manufacturer based or something. But anyway, based on the DNA that was found there, all of those people that I just listed have been eliminated from the suspect pool. So they're pretty much left now with this idea that maybe it was a stranger. Gail had apparently told someone that she felt like there was somebody looking in her windows and that when she was outside, there was this kind of creepy neighbor that was staring at her. And like I said, the first floor kitchen window was broken and the like glass shards were found on the inside. So like someone had broken the glass from the outside into the house. So you can see that someone forced their way in. They weren't invited through a door or anything like that. So one of the biggest clues, and I'm really sorry, I hate this, but I have to put it in here. It, it just hurts me. Um, major trigger warning for child content. Um, but it's actually the, answering machine like message not a voicemail but the answering machine message okay so it's tamra's voice and she's whispering and she whispers it's happening it's he's hitting me and everything come get me so she's whispering that into the phone and um Basically, like if you remember phones from the 90s, like you had the receiver for it and you could press a button to record a memo or on some of the phones, you could press like a speakerphone button and then dial from it. Mm -hmm. So the thought is that Tamara was trying to hit the speakerphone button and call for help. Yeah. But instead, she hit the memo button. And so it probably went through some pre-recorded, like, you know, record your message after the tone, blah, 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 blah. And they think that Tamara thought she was calling 911. Oh, my God. And that it was an operator when she heard the recording message. 
And so her recording, it's happening, it's he's hitting me and everything, come get me, was her trying to tell the police. But in reality, she was recording the answering machine message. Wow. However, they were able to then send it to the FBI and get the audio enhanced. And you can hear a a female saying, hang up in the beginning. And then, oh no, sorry. You hear a male voice say, hang up at the beginning. And then you hear Tamara's message. And then you hear groaning that is clearly not from Tamara. Ken Maines, which is that uh, investigator I've been mentioning throughout the episode, said it sounds like a female. And then Tamara says, he's hitting me. So they think maybe there's two people, male and female, because I guess, I don't know, they don't think that her mother would be speaking or I think it was that a female said, hang up, but she said, he's hitting me. So that's why they think like a female was telling her to hang up and then a male. But I mean, it could have also been not what was actually there or um you know it could have just been a male's voice that was so distorted um i mean they were taking a tape from 1994 and she was whispering so they really had to enhance it so they're kind of looking at this idea that maybe it was a male and female duo hmm so wrapping up our long episode here, there were some really big names that came in to work on this case, including people who had worked on the cases of Ted Bundy's victims, the victims of the Green River Killer, and the victims of the Atlanta child murderer. All in all, this really is just absolutely heartbreaking. Gail's mother ended up passing away without the answers, um, and her remaining family just refuses to do the same. The only solace they have found is that their mother is now with Gail and Tamara, and they feel that she knows the truth in her afterlife. So that's kind of how the family kind of allows themselves to cope a little bit with it. And I searched for where to send current tips, but I couldn't find any specific name or phone number. However, there is a Facebook account. It's not a group. It's an actual account that you can like add as a friend called Gail Matthews Unsolved Homicide. And then where you can list like former names, it has Tamara's name in parentheses there. So you can look that up. If you do have any information you're willing to share, you can send Send it directly to the family. You can also feel free to send it to us and we can forward it on to the law enforcement in that area, or you can reach out to law enforcement in Williamsport as well. Um, there's just not a specific detective in this case. That's all we have for this episode of the Keystone Cold Cases podcast. Please remember never to reach out to family or friends of the victims, only to law enforcement if you have any tips. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Sarah. Find all of our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. Theme music and production assistance from Darren Makins. Join us again next week for another case to sleuth out.